The biggest TV shows, most popular TV shows are stories of transformation. They're stories of how people can change, whether it's their life or their appearance or their habits, incredibly drastically, sometimes over a short period of time. Maybe we see shows about people who get extreme makeovers or people who lose an incredible amount of weight. But if you watch these shows, it's amazing to see particularly how much someone's appearance can transform over a period of time. It's amazing to see how much someone's appearance can change when they have access to a good hairstylist or a bigger wardrobe or a better diet and a personal trainer. But sometimes the changes that people go through on these shows go even deeper than just the appearance. Someone's appearance transforms and all of a sudden they have more confidence than they did before. Or maybe they have more discipline than they did before because they want to maintain the transformation that has happened. But what about if, or maybe rather when, those outward transformations fade? What do you do then? Because eventually, no matter how many makeovers you get, no matter how big your wardrobe is, your hair will start to turn gray or fall out. Or your skin will begin to wrinkle. Or maybe over time you'll put back some of that weight that you've lost. Or you'll lose a little bit of your stamina. The point is that over time, you end up right back where you started. You end up in need of yet another makeover, another transformation. And this time, you hope and you pray that this makeover, this transformation, will go further than the last one did. And that it will be longer lasting than the last one was. But the truth is that true transformation, the kind that doesn't fade away with time, the kind that doesn't just slowly but surely slip from our hands, is the kind of transformation that occurs on the inside. If we don't want transformation to fade away, it has to go deeper than just the outside. It can't just be rooted in external appearances. It has to go down to the very core of your being. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about the kind of transformation that lasts as followers of Jesus. We're talking about transformation that is driven by the gospel, because the gospel is what gives believers new life from the inside out. The gospel is what offers true, eternal transformation. So with that, open to Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 17. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 838. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Now, normally I don't typically do a bulletin insert, but there is one in there today. Some sermons lend themselves to that better than others. This is one of them. So grab your bulletin, take out that outline, grab a pen, grab a pencil, fill that out as we go if you'd like as we look at this passage. But before we read the passage, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that your gospel offers us so much more than just a cleaned-up life. That the gospel is not about us just changing our habits through trying really hard or putting that rubber band on our wrist or, or whatever that looks like, God. But thank you that your gospel offers true transformation, the kind of transformation that we could never accomplish on our own. Thank you that your gospel justifies us, that you declare us righteous because of what your son has done. But God, thank you that after you justify us, you continue your work in our hearts and in our minds, that you're working on us and changing us and chiseling us into the people 
that you would have us be. So, God, I pray that every single one of us would be reminded this morning of the transformation that you offer if we're already followers of Jesus. And, God, I pray that those who are here who are not followers of Jesus, that they might be impacted by just how powerful your gospel is. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a pretty large passage of scripture that we're covering today. This is over 35 verses, but we can handle it because when you really look at the passage altogether, you learn that there is a little bit of structure to it. But I would say it's structured like a sandwich. If you look in your bulletin insert, there's an outline of a sandwich. That's kind of what's happening here. And the idea is that you have a main point or the meat right in the middle of the sandwich. So we're going to look at each part of this passage individually, each part of the sandwich on its own, but then look at them all together and see what we come up with. So with that, let's start with the bread. Part one, Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't walk the way you used to walk. Now, it makes sense that he would say this, considering that what we talked about last week was very, very similar. Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. We talked about how Paul's challenge to walk in that manner does not contradict Paul's commitment to salvation by grace through faith. These things do not contradict one another. You don't have to pick one or the other. So Paul again says you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But here's the thing. If you remember back in week one, we talked about how most of these Ephesian believers, most of the people in this church reading this letter, they're Gentiles. But Paul's point is that even if you're ethnically speaking still Gentiles, your lifestyle should look much different from your average Gentile. Your life should look much different from how it used to look before you came to know Christ compared to now. Because the problem with these Gentiles, these unbelieving Gentiles that you don't want to walk like, they don't walk in just obliviousness. They walk in rebellion against God. It's not that these people are just unaware of how to please God. The problem is that these people have no desire to please God. Look at the words that Paul uses. He uses words like darkened and hardened to describe their hearts. Those are pretty sober words to use. So Paul clearly shows that these people are in a really, really bad state of affairs when it comes to their relationship with God. There is no relationship with God. They are alienated from God. And then Paul seems to be saying, you want proof of just how rebellious these people are? We'll look at verse 19. They're marked by sensuality. They're greedy for any type of impurity. Any opportunity they have for impurity, they reach for it. They're looking for impurity. That's just how rebellious these people truly are because of their callousness of heart. 
They seem to be a lot like the people that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. People who look at the world around them and they see enough about God. They know enough about God to give him some level of honor and some level of respect. But they just choose not to. They suppress the truth. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in this ignorance, they know something about God, but they don't know everything about God. They can look at the world around them and they can see that God is powerful. They can see that God is wise. They can see that God is creative. But their ideas about God are false because their ideas about God are incomplete. One can't know or have a saving knowledge of who God is apart from looking at Jesus. These people's ideas about God are incomplete, and that manifests itself in bad conduct. Because false ideas about God lead to false understandings of right and wrong. We looked in 2014, early 2014, at 1 John. And we talked about how false teachers, according to John, can often be picked out not just by how they teach, but how they live. Because false understandings about God lead to false conduct, lead to impurity, lead to sensuality. But then Paul seems to be reminding these believers, don't get too cocky. Remember, he said you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That implies that Paul is reminding them, don't forget that you once did walk as these people do. Paul seems to do the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, albeit a little bit more explicitly. He says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And when you hear a passage like that, some Christians are tempted to say, yeah, that is right. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. These people are horrible. These people are terrible. They are awful. We should absolutely 100% condemn these people. But then look at what Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. In other words, don't forget where you came from. When you look at these people who are living in impurity, living in sin, these people who are darkened, these people who are hardened, don't forget that you used to be in the exact same boat. And the only reason you're any different now, the only reason you have any hope to inherit the kingdom of God is purely and solely by God's grace. So when you look at these people, greedy for impurity, Marked by sensuality. Don't forget that you used to be one of them. And it is only by God's grace that you are any different now. Let's pick up in Ephesians 4 verse 20. Paul says there, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
So as Paul moves on, he tells the Ephesians to put off the old self, put on the new self. Out with the old, in with the new. He's kind of comparing this to clothes. Clothes that you put on, clothes that you take off. But Paul's command, as we probably know all too well, if you've been a Christian for very long, isn't always as easy as it sounds. Think about old clothes. Old clothes are comfortable. You're used to them. You've worn them a lot. They've kind of molded and fit and changed to fit your body perfectly. You love old clothes. That's what you know best. But sometimes we are tempted to struggle with a form of spiritual Stockholm syndrome. We grow so used to the things that hold us captive. We grow so used to the things that lead us to destruction that we struggle to put them off. Because that's what we've always known. That's what we're comfortable with. And so sometimes we're a little bit scared or a little bit hesitant to embrace the new clothes, to embrace the new life, the new identity that God has given us. And really, why do you have to throw the old stuff away anyway? That's a great question. Why does it matter if you're saved by grace, if you place your faith in Jesus? What's the point of putting all the old stuff away? If that's what we're comfortable with, why does it matter so much? Because Paul's making clear that that is not who you are anymore. Period. Like Joshua said, the first three chapters of Ephesians are almost all entirely about this new identity. In chapter 1, Paul says that you've been predestined, that you've been redeemed, that you've been sealed. All these different things about who you are now compared to who you used to be. And here Paul says that you're not the same as you were then either. You've been given a new identity. And specifically, he says, you've been renewed in the spirit of your minds. In other words, you've been transformed. This putting off of the old, this putting on the new, it's way more than just an external makeover. It's not just trying to quit bad habits and trying to start some good habits. Because gospel transformation occurs or starts on the inside. That's your first blank of your insert. Gospel transformation occurs on the inside. Paul hits a similar theme in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He writes there, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge. There's an internal change that is happening for the follower of Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Same idea. Paul makes it clear that this is not just an external makeover. He says there, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind is being renewed. Your knowledge is being renewed. You are a different person than you once were. You're not the same person you were when you used to run with the Gentiles. You are no longer destined for wrath. You're no longer destined for destruction. Through what Christ has done, you have been declared holy and are being made holy. You have been declared righteous and yet you're still being made righteous. In other words, Paul's point with this put off the old and put on the new 
It's be who you already are. Period. Be who you already are. Because gospel transformation starts on the inside. It occurs on the inside. So with that, let's move to part two of our sandwich. We've covered the bread. Now we get to the condiments. I hate condiments. I eat everything plain. But I'm thinking, okay, if I were a normal person, what would this sandwich look like? So this is what I came with. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the first plank is that gospel transformation occurs on the inside. The second blank in your insert is that gospel transformation is seen on the outside. It's seen on the outside. Look at all these different areas that Paul covers in these verses. Verse 25, he talks about honesty. Verse 26 and 27, he talks about your temper. Verse 28, he talks about integrity. Verse 29, speech. Verse 30, being guided by the Spirit. Verse 31, unity. Verse 32, love. You put it all together. And Paul's point seems to be that gospel transformation is seen on the outside and it's seen in every area of life. It's not just a transformation that happens from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Every single part of our life has been changed. Now, the humbling part about this is that as you look at these verses, think back to when you first became a follower of Christ. Look at verse 25 and ask yourself, am I more honest now than I was when I first became a follower of Jesus? Do I have more control over my temper now than I did when I first met Christ? Am I more marked by integrity now than I was before? Does my speech honor God better now than it once did? Do I really seek to be guided by the spirit or do I still seek to be guided by my flesh or guided by the world? Do I have a more strong desire for unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I more marked by love than I used to be? Because gospel transformation is seen on the outside and it is seen in every area of life. That's the idea that Paul is getting at. That's why Jesus can say with such confidence, by their fruit, you will know them. That's where this comes from. So with that, let's move to part three. This is the meat of the sandwich. We've covered the bread. We've covered the condiments. Now we get to the meat. This is Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
We're at the core of the passage in the sandwich structure. And Paul says that we should imitate God. Now, this is one of those passages that it can be a little bit easy to overlook. We read it and we think, okay, yeah, sure, imitate God. That's that's great. But when you think about it, that's a pretty big request. That seems like a pretty unfair expectation for Paul to tell these believers to imitate God. Is that really attainable? Is that really possible? But Paul's not alone in this challenge for believers to imitate God. In Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In other words, imitate God. In 1 Peter 1, 16, Peter quotes Leviticus and says, Be holy as I am holy. In other words, imitate God. In 1 John 3.16, we read this passage that says we should lay down our lives for our brothers the way Christ laid down his life for us. In other words, imitate God. But that is a big command. That is a high expectation. And who are we to think that we could possibly imitate God? He's God and we're us. Well, the third blank is that gospel transformation helps us to imitate God. Gospel transformation helps us to imitate God. Sometimes we hear that the gospel is about going to heaven when we die. And there's truth to that. That is one of the glorious rewards of being a believer in Christ, that we look forward to being in God's presence upon our death, that we look forward to being in his new heaven and new earth. When it comes down out of heaven. But the gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is not just something that we wait around to benefit from until we die. The gospel changes us right now. The gospel transforms us into the people that God intends us to be. People who reflect his character. People who are merciful because he is merciful. People who are holy because he is holy. People who lay down our lives for one another because Christ laid down his life for us on the cross. Gospel transformation helps us imitate God. Let's move on to part four. This is the condiments on the other side of the sandwich. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 5 is important. We'll have verse 5 up on the screen. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We'll have 7 through 11 up on the screen as well. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul re-emphasizes the same point here that he emphasized in point two. But those verses that we had up on the screen, let's look at those a little bit more deeply. Verse five, Paul says, don't be an idolater. Why? Because you aren't an idolater. You're a child of God. Don't be an idolater because you're not an idolater. That's not your identity anymore. Verses 7 through 10, Paul says, because you're not an idolater, don't be an idolater and don't partner with idolaters. You're children of light. Absolutely, you associate with those in darkness, but you don't partner with those in darkness because you're not an idolater. You're not the person that you were before. And then verse 11, don't be an idolater. Don't partner with idolaters. Expose idolatry. If you are children of light, let your light shine. Let your light expose the idols that people think will bring them hope. And yet, really, you know that it won't. Let your light expose the idols that you used to worship that sometimes like to come back around and see if they can regain our attention. Let your light expose idolatry and illuminate the one true God. Don't be marked by idolatry. Because gospel transformation that occurs on the inside is seen on the outside. So don't act like an idolater because you're not one anymore. Finally, part five, the other slice of bread. This is Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in this final passage... Paul re-emphasizes what he talked about in part one. Now, he says several things that are good and important and valuable here. He talks about our use of time. He talks about the sin of drunkenness. But there's one phrase that I want you to focus on. And that phrase is be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be transformed inside. Be filled with the Spirit because he brings about gospel transformation on the inside. The Spirit, He gives us new hearts. The Spirit, He renews our minds. He's continually working on us and changing us every single day from the inside out. Because the only way true gospel transformation occurs is when it occurs on the inside. The same point as the bread on the other side of the sandwich. So we step back. And we look at this all together. We look at the passage from a bird's eye view. We see all the main points. We see how they kind of seem to align, how there kind of seems to be a structure that Paul's getting at here. But what are the implications of this? When we put it all together, what do we learn? Well, we have several questions. Question number one, 
How do we imitate God? Well, Scripture seems to say with our actions. Show mercy because God shows mercy. That's something that you do. Love your neighbor because God loves his people. Therefore, that's something that you do. Lay down your lives for one another because that's something Christ did for us. Let your imitating of God be seen in your actions. But how do we do these things? How does one actually do these actions that imitate God? Because we can't do them on our own. We do them because we've been transformed. Transformation is how we do these things. But then, of course, how can one be transformed? Well, we're transformed by the gospel. When you put it all together, the main point is that we are called to imitate God. But not by our own will alone, not by our own efforts, not by our own trying really hard, not by just trying to be better people, but because we've been transformed. And the way that we can be transformed, that we can have our minds renewed, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, is through the gospel. That's how it all comes together. But hypothetically, let's say we took a couple of the parts of the sandwich away. What are we left with? Let's say we take away the bread, the emphasis on inner transformation, but we keep the condiments and we keep the meat. At that point, we have nothing but moralism and behavior modification, a challenge to imitate God, commands about how we should act. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not just about making good people, polite people, kind people. That's not the gospel at all. What if we took away the condiments? We take away the outward actions, but we keep the bread and we keep the meat. Well, then we have nothing but people who say they've been transformed on the inside. They're striving to imitate God, but they aren't bearing witness to the gospel to the world around them because their actions aren't seen. Their honesty, their integrity, their speech, it might not be any different than it was before. Or at the very least, it might not be seen. And then finally, what if we take away the meat, the challenge to imitate God? We leave the bread and we leave the condiments. Well, then it doesn't really have much of a point. I don't believe a sandwich has a point if there's no meat in it. And this passage has no point if there's no meat to it. If we are not striving or being challenged by Paul to imitate God, then what's the transformation for? What are the commands all about? That's the point that we leave with. The gospel gives believers new life from the inside out. We are not the people that we used to be. We are different. We've been transformed. And this is seen in our actions as we find joy in imitating the God who saved us. And what scripture teaches is that because of sin, because of rebellion, because our hearts have been darkened, our hearts have been Hardened because we strive for impurity, because we're greedy for sensuality, because we are callous. Every single person needs an extreme makeover. But we don't need an extreme makeover that only goes skin deep. We don't just need a new hairdresser or a new wardrobe or to lose a few pounds. That's not the kind of makeover that we need. We need something so much deeper something so much more profound, something so much more lasting. In fact, something that is so lasting that it gives us hope in eternity. 
And that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel gives us new life from the inside out. The gospel changes us. And that gives us hope even upon our death. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would trust that you're working on us. That we would believe that your gospel has the power to make us different. God, I pray that as many of us look back upon years of following your son Jesus, as we look back on even decades that have passed, I pray that we would see fruit, that we would see transformation, and that we would not get pride from that, that we would not give ourselves a pat on the back for that, but rather we would understand that it is purely by your grace. And God, that we would praise you for that and be humbled by the transformation that you've brought about in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. God, I pray that those of us who have been following you and yet we look at our lives and we don't really see a lot of those actions. We don't really see a change. We don't really see a transformation, God. I pray that on the one hand, we wouldn't be tempted to just sit back and and not take any action at all, to be lazy Christians. But I also pray that we would avoid the other extreme, that we would tell ourselves that clearly it's up to us if we're going to be transformed. Clearly, it's all about our will and our effort and our striving if we're going to look more like Christ. God, help us to avoid both of those extremes. God, give us the wisdom and the discernment to look out for sins in our lives that maybe we've grown a little bit too comfortable with, that we've grown too used to. But God, I pray that we would also trust that you're faithful in working out our salvation, that you bring it to completion. God, I pray that our imitating of you would not be for our own sense of self-righteousness. It would not be so that we could look in the mirror and feel better about ourselves, but so that we could bring you honor and bring you glory in everywhere that we go, with everyone that we meet, in every conversation that we have. And that when people see us, they wouldn't be amazed at how much we've changed ourselves, but they would be amazed at how much you have changed us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he took the wrath and the penalty that we deserve, that we could never pay, even if we wanted to. And God, I thank you that the gospel isn't just about some ticket to heaven when we die, but that believing in the gospel is just the beginning of a new calling and a new identity and a new mission that you've given us. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.